Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11. Matthew, chapter 11, we're going to begin by reading from verses 20 through 30 of Matthew, chapter 11. You'll find the Gospel of Matthew uh, towards, I suppose, definitely the second half of your Bible. It's the first book in the New Testament. And if you're in Romans or Acts or Corinthians, turn left. If you're in Isaiah or Jeremiah, turn right. Matthew chapter 11. Big numbers on the page are the chapter numbers, and the small number on the page are the verse numbers. And that will help you find Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. Matthew 11, verse 20. Uh, Follow along as I read. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the Father No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me. Come, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We have, during the month of December, been enjoying in our house playing a game called Wavelength. And I won't explain to you in great detail, but in Wavelength, the game, they give you two uh, opposites, two uh, categories of opposing things, and you have to give your team a clue so that they turn the red dial that you see on the screen to the place between the two opposites that, that they think what you described false. For example, if the clues were hot and cold... What clue could you give your teammates so that they would put that red dial right where it is on the screen? So you want to give them a clue for something that's not really, really, really hot, but more hot than cold. So you don't want to say the surface of the sun, because that, that's too hot. What would fit there? Let's say, how about uh, June? Not August, not July, but June. Would that go right there? Here's an example of, of, of one we actually did. Uh, 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 the, the clues, the opposites were bland and spicy. Now, my children told me after the first service uh, in their ever-present helpfulness to correct me that actually the words were bland and flavorful, but we have what we have. So anyway, what uh, uh, Luke wanted me to put the dial, the red dial. He knew where we were supposed to go to get the points, and he gave me the clue vanilla. 
Where would you put the red dial between bland and flavorful if it was vanilla? What I learned that day is that Luke and I have a different opinion of the flavor of vanilla. <laughs> Here's one more, a challenge for you to consider. Let's put the two opposites, gentle and harsh, gentle and harsh. And the clue I want to give you is Jesus. Where are you going to put the dial? Obviously, obviously, we just read the passage. It's got to be gentle because he says, I am gentle and humble in heart. Clearly, that's where it's got to be, all the way over on the gentle side, except this paragraph comes on the heels of another paragraph where Jesus talks to sinners about the temperature of hell. Those aren't his exact words, but, but he's talking about judgment day. Is that gentle? One of the goals that I have as we look at these, uh, this verse today is I want us, I want to show you how this passage helps us understand both the severity and the gentleness of the Lord Jesus. Jesus is both more severe and his gentleness is thicker and deeper than most of us realize. We need help because we often overlook the severity of Jesus when, to, when he says things like this about judgment day. It makes us a little uncomfortable. This is not the way we're used to Jesus talking, uh, Jesus uh, meek and mild, right? And, and then sometimes, though, we confuse when Jesus says, I am gentle, we confuse it and think that he said, I am genteel, as if he can handle the difficulties and trouble of life, that he's too, he would be too shocked, too shocked by the mess that we have made of things. There's a difference between genteel and gentle. Uh, you remember where we are in the Gospel of Matthew. So this is a section in Matthew where there is rising opposition to the Lord Jesus. In Matthew chapter 10, he's just sent out his disciples. He's commissioned them. He gave them a commissioning message. And he told them and he tells us through them that representing Jesus in the world is going to be uh, costly. Part of the challenge is uh, representing him tests you to be severe with the right people in the right situation and to be gentle in the right place at the right time with the right people. Is there anybody who struggles with balancing severity and gentleness in your life? Let's learn more about the Lord Jesus and see who he is so that we might represent him more faithfully, shall we? I have two headings that I want to use to go through this passage. They're, neither of them are going to surprise you. We're going to start, number one, by talking about the severity of Jesus. The severity of Jesus. And we pick things up in verse 20. You can tell, even from the beginning in verse 20, that Jesus is taking a more oppositional stance to the people that he is preaching to because the text says Jesus began to denounce. Your translation might say denounce. It might say criticize. It might say reprimand. Uh, Jesus is pointing out to them a fatal flaw that they have. And he's speaking, the audience are three towns, the three towns where he did most of his miracles. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. We know the most about Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum was Jesus' new hometown. He moved from Nazareth to Capernaum uh, when he began his ministry. So he lived there, and many of his miracles, some of them recorded specifically for us in Matthew, happened in Capernaum. 
We know less about Bethsaida and Chorazin. We're actually not even sure exactly where they are. And there's no uh, miracles, as far as we can tell, specific miracles in Matthew listed as having occurred in Chorazin and Bethsaida. But remember, Matthew has summaries. And Jesus went around all their towns and villages performing miracles and teaching about the kingdom of God. Matthew has summaries like that. Apparently, Chorazin and Bethsaida fit in some of those summaries. These are the places that Jesus visited the most. And he is denouncing them. He's criticizing them because they uh, did not repent. They saw the miracles that he did, but they did not repent. Repentance has come up before. It's the first words in Jesus and John's ministries. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent means to change your orientation. Of course, it begins with a change of mind, but uh, it continues, and this is the purpose of the miracles. Jesus says the reason that these miracles were done were to teach the people in Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum that they should repent. They were supposed to look at what Jesus was doing and say, God is here. Maybe they would have gotten that far. God's representative is here. Maybe they could have gotten at least there. There's a prophet. There's a prophet here, a mighty miracle worker from God. God is here. And then next, what does that mean for my life if God is here? What what should I do that God is here? I'm not ready for God to be here. That's the thought process they're supposed to go through. God is here. That's what the miracles are supposed to do for them. God is here And I'm not ready. Of course, the question comes as you read the Gospel of Matthew. Have you yourself faced the reality that the Lord Jesus has come with all of its implications? A couple of years ago, it was a Saturday morning. It was a lazy Saturday morning at the Divinity household. Uh, We were awake, but I hadn't gotten uh, taken a shower. I hadn't gotten dressed yet. And somebody about 9.30 knocked on the door. And I went to the door, and it was a young man. He wanted to come in and talk to me. And I thought to myself into this house. Where am I going to take him in the house? The kitchen, well, we still have our breakfast dishes laying all over the place. And let's be honest, we still have Friday night's dishes still laying all over the place. I'm going to take him in the kitchen. I'm not sure I want to take him into the living room because it's a landfill, a land uh, minefield of Legos in the living room. Do I really want to take him there? And then there's the guest room, the study, the bed's there, and I'd started to do some laundry, and now there's just piles of unfolded laundry. I mean, I had a lot to do that day. I was going to get to these things, but it was only 9.30 in the morning, and it was a Saturday, and somebody showed up at my house that I'm not ready. One of the things that Matthew teaches us is Jesus tells us how to get ready, and the first step in getting ready is recognizing that you're not. That's not what these people were doing. In fact, you can tell how they were thinking in verse 23. Jesus says, and you Capernaum, will, be, will you be lifted to the heavens? I think he's addressing their assumption. Instead of saying, God is here, I'm not ready. They're instead thinking, God is here, and he couldn't have picked a better place than our town. Man, God must love us because we're certainly lovable. We are, we are, Jesus chose our town to live in, and we are headed to heaven because he's here, and, you know, frankly, he would struggle to find people more deserving. Jesus, um, 
doesn't give that line of thinking much patience or much credence. In fact, let me read verse 23, and then I want to show you a passage in the Old Testament. But uh, uh, verse 23 again. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Now, some people think that Jesus here is referring to, alluding to Isaiah 14. In Isaiah chapter 14, the prophet Isaiah is condemning the king of Babylon for his excessive pride, his arrogance. He thinks he's something, and, and the prophet Isaiah is saying, you are not what you think you are. Um, look at Isaiah 14, verse 12. Uh, some people actually think, too, that uh, this may be a reference to Lucifer, that great angel that God created, and his, and his act of rebellion, his thought process. But look what it says. See if you recognize verse 23 in these verses. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations, you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zephon. I will ascend to the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Hades, the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Do you see what Jesus is saying in verse 23 in this condemnation in Isaiah 14? You are not having a good day if the Lord Jesus compares you to Satan. For the sake of comparison, actually, with these cities, Jesus mentions three more cities. Um, Tyre and Sidon, he mentions together. Tyre and Sidon are two cities that were on the Mediterranean Sea. They were condemned in the Old Testament for their idolatry and the wickedness of those cities. The Israelites had a history of looking at those cities and saying, they're wicked, they're vile, they deserve God's judgment. And then he mentions Sodom. Sodom, the worst of the worst. Sodom as a city represents all of the bad things that were in the promised land before God sent the Israelites in there to clean house and take over. And twice, twice Jesus says, if the miracles that you have seen had been performed in Tyre or Sidon or Sodom, they would have repented a long time. But you did not repent. What does that mean? It means, woe. He says this, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. In the Bible, when you see the word woe, it's the opposite of the word blessed. Matthew 5, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Uh, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, Psalm 1 says. Blessing, blessing, blessing. The opposite of pronouncing a blessing on someone is to say to them, woe. Judgment, punishment, pity, doom, woe. God is going to destroy you. You can see why the opposition is rising to Jesus when he starts speaking in these terms. When he he picks the worst of the worst and when he picks their worst enemies and says, they're going to be better off before God on the day of judgment than, than you are. If they had the same benefits that you did, they would have repented, but you did not. This is a familiar concept. Familiar concept that we've seen so far in the Gospels. Uh, Even in the Gospel of Matthew a couple uh, months ago, we were talking about this. 
The more you know and hear about Jesus, the greater your degree of accountability to him. That's what the Bible teaches. The more you know and hear about Jesus, the greater your accountability to him. Let's put this in more modern terms, shall we? Do you know how much gospel work has been done in the city of London? Or do you know how much gospel work has been done in the city of, of New York, in New York City? Let's imagine the Lord Jesus standing today in New York City and saying, Woe to you! Woe to you, New York City! If, if Billy Graham had been Japanese and had preached in Tokyo, they would have repented. But you did not. Or... Woe to you, London. If Charles Spurgeon had preached in Beijing, they would have believed and repented. But, but you have that privilege and you did not. The greater your knowledge, the greater you get to, the more opportunities you have to know and hear about Jesus, the higher your degree of accountability to him. Just think about how this accords with the book of Romans. In the first few chapters of the book of Romans, Paul's indicting all of humanity. All of humanity stands condemned and guilty before God. And he starts in Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed against human beings. Why? Because God has revealed himself in creation and we have rejected what God has revealed. We neither give thanks to him, we don't glorify him, we have rejected him, and so his wrath is revealed against us because of the revelation in creation. We deserve God's wrath that we have rejected. We deserve God's wrath. How much more if the Lord Jesus comes and you see him do miracles, how much more are you accountable to him for rejecting that message? The more you know, the more you hear, the greater your level of accountability. It will be worse on the day of judgment for those who know more and chose to reject it. Here's another warning that I can offer to you that the scriptures enjoins me to present before you. You who sit in our chairs and have heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've heard it in Awana. You've heard it in Sunday school. You've heard it in Pyro student ministries. You have heard this message repeatedly about the Lord Jesus and about the forgiveness that is found in him. If you hear this message and you reject it, you are increasing your accountability to God. And I warn you, it will be worse for you on the day of judgment than people who have not had the opportunities to hear what you hear and turn from the good news. Notice who Jesus is warning here. We usually think of this sort of hellfire preaching uh, taking place in uh, what Times Square. A guy with a sandwich board that says turn or burn. And there he is preaching to all the pagans that are in Times Square. Because those pagans really need to hear about hell. Jesus speaks to hell here in the Gospel of Matthew more to the people who think they're on the inside but aren't insiders. They're actually outsiders. We want to talk to more about hell, the people on the outside, and they, they need to be warned. That's true. But Jesus talks more about hell to the people on the inside. And he warns them. God is going to show mercy and God will show judgment. That is in keeping with who he is. Who receives his mercy and who receives his judgment will be a surprise to some. 
It will be better for the city of Sodom in the day of judgment than it will be for you who sit in our church and hear the good news and reject it. Take this warning. Consider it very carefully what you will do with what you know and have heard about the Lord Jesus. Notice his severity. His severity in telling us this. We turn secondly now to his gentleness. The gentleness of Jesus. We start in verse 25. Verse 25 takes a surprising turn. It takes an odd turn. It's odd and it's very instructive. What would you do if the people that you served most heartily, the people that, that uh, uh, saw your ministry the closest and had the up, most upfront look, front row seats to see you do your miracles, if they reject you, what would you do in this situation? I think I would be inclined toward self-pity. Woe is me. I poured my heart out for these people. Look what they do. Maybe a little bit of anger, bitterness, self-righteousness. I warned you, it's your own fault, right? What does the Lord Jesus do? He turns to praise. <laughs> Verse 25, at that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. He sees in the rejection of these cities, he sees even here, he sees God's good hand, God's providential, sovereign hand. Maybe it would help us understand if we think about who he's talking about. He has in mind contrast between the wise and the learned and little children. Who are the wise and the learned? Uh, Jesus is not opposed to uh, education. He's not opposed to uh, knowledge. But uh, these people who are uh, the wise and learned Jesus has in mind are people, Howard Hendricks used to say, they're educated beyond their intelligence. They're people who, have, who are really smart and their learning has made them arrogant. They have their lives put together. They have everything figured out. They don't need Jesus because they don't need someone else to help them, especially some questionable prophet from the dinky town of Nazareth. They don't need the help. They're wise. They're learned. Contrast that with the teachability of little children, so Jesus has in mind, who are willing to admit that they need help. You can follow Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew invites you to become a follower of Jesus, but you can follow Jesus if you have your life put together, if you have everything figured out, if you have all the answers. Following Jesus calls for some humility. Do you remember uh, Jesse Ventura? Do you remember who Jesse Ventura was? Jesse Ventura was a professional wrestler. He didn't often, uh, when, during his wrestling days, he didn't look this put together. He usually had a boa around his neck. Uh, Jesse Ventura was a professional wrestler who, under the banner of the Reform Party in the uh, 90s, became the governor of Minnesota. And Jesse Ventura very famously said, Christianity is for weak people. I'm not a Christian because Christianity is for weak people. He's absolutely right about that. What he's wrong about is the fact that he's not weak. 
I'm not sure if Jesse Ventura has changed his mind about this or not, but it, it, you can't hold that opinion and be a Christian. Jesse Ventura is just too smart for Jesus. David Zoll, a few years ago, wrote an article called Pen Face and Campus Tragedies, More Notes on the Suicide Epidemic. He's writing about college students, and apparently there is a thing, I don't know this, at Penn State University called Pen Face. Pen face is what you show on your face when you have everything put together, uh, or you want everybody to think you have everything put together, but the inside, your life is a mess. So this, your face, everything's great, and on the inside, you're falling apart. Uh, apparently at Stanford uh, University, they call this duck syndrome. I understand that a little bit better, duck syndrome. You know, you've seen a duck uh, paddle across a pond. On the top, they look very serene and very uh, beautiful and graceful and, and calm. And what, what's happening underneath the water, right? They're paddling like that's like crazy, paddling, 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 paddling. Duck syndrome. Everything's fine. Not really. I'm falling apart. Greg Eels uh, teaches at Cornell University, and he talks about his experience with students, and he sees uh, this duck syndrome happening, happening and he, he says, I walk around, and I look at the students, and I think to myself, that one's gone to the hospital. That person has an eating disorder. That student just went on antidepressants. As a therapist, I know that nobody is as happy or as grown up as they seem on the outside. If your life is really as good as you make it look on Instagram or your Christmas cards, um, you can't follow Jesus. Verse 27, Jesus moves on and he begins here to, he seems to be borrowing from the Gospel of John. Remember we read John for the last couple weeks around Christmas time. And notice how John-like this sounds. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Here is Jesus at his most exclusivistic and his most, here's a $12 word, predestinarian. He's very exclusivistic, right? You can only know God through me. I am the only way that you can know God. Sounds very much like John 14, 6, right? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And uh, you can only know him if the Son chooses to reveal him. Sounds very much like Paul in, in Ephesians chapter 1 when he talks about election and predestination. Notice that the context in which he says these things, you've got to hold a lot of these truths in tension when you read the New Testament because Jesus says, no one knows the Father except the one that I choose to reveal to the Father too. And, and then immediately he says, come to me all. Call goes out to everybody, even as he says this most predestinarian thing. And, and he had just said, why don't they believe in Bethsaida? Why don't they believe in Chorazin? Why don't they believe in Capernaum? Because they refuse to repent. So hold all those things in tension as you read this, this passage. The great invitation begins in verse 28. Come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. Now who's he talking to here? I think on the one hand, he is talking to people, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, who are bearing the heavy burdens of the law of Moses 
especially the way it's been taught by the Pharisees. It was a yoke that, that the Pharisees, they used to talk about this, the yoke of the law that they were putting people under. And it's a heavy burden. It's like Jesus is, the language literally refers to someone who's, who's uh, for the purposes of his job, has to carry heavy loads. And come to me, you who are heavy burdened. Look at Matthew 23, where, 4, where Jesus is criticizing the Pharisees, uh, the teachers of the law. What do they do? They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Or Acts 15.10 talks about Gentiles and obeying the law and a yoke, he compares them to yoke. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? Galatians 5.1 it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. All these laws and commands that are just weighing down people, that they feel God's good word as just a weight. And Jesus says, come to me who are weary and burdened. I think he's also talking to people, though, who just feel burdened by their own, the weight of their own sin. They might not even have the Ten Commandments, but they have the conscience that God has given them. And they know, I just don't measure up. Maybe people who feel heavy and burdened by the fact that they don't measure up to other people's expectations and standards. He's speaking to people who are broken, up tired and wearied because of life in this broken world. I confess to feeling agitated and troubled and discouraged. Does this invitation apply to me? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Maybe he's talking to people who are discouraged by the ways they try to deal with their own burdens. Uh, Brian Wilkerson said several years ago he and his family were at a restaurant eating dinner and around the walls of the, tele, uh, over, of the restaurant were televisions all showing different things, real restful atmosphere to eat, right? And uh, one of the screens was showing Wiley Coyote cartoons. Sound was off. And his son, his four-year-old son, was watching Wiley Coyote and he watched Wiley Coyote try to catch the roadrunner, and so he put on rocket skates to try to be fast enough to catch the roadrunner. That didn't work, and he put himself in a cannon and launched himself after roadrunner to try to catch roadrunner, and he, and he put himself in a slingshot from the Acme Corporation to try to increase his speed so he could catch roadrunner. And after uh, watching one of the cartoons, the four-year-old son said, just kind of out loud to no one in particular, he said, no matter what he does, he's never going to get that chicken. Isn't that the human condition sometimes? Don't you feel that way? Weary and burdened. And, and all the, the ways that we try to fix this, no matter what he does, he's never going to get that chicken. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Rest. Now, we're going to talk about rest a little bit more next week when we come to Matthew chapter 12, Lord willing. We're going to talk about the Sabbath and, and Jesus being the Lord of the Sabbath. We'll talk about rest and finding rest in him a little bit more. But, you know, God put in Genesis 1, he built rest into creation. 
You're supposed to rest. He made you rest. If you don't rest, you'll eventually collapse from sleep deprivation. And it's his good intention that you even rest when you're awake sometimes. That you'll be able to sit down on a regular basis and look at the work you've done and rest from it and even find satisfaction in it. Some of you, when you sit down from your rest, all you can think about is all the things you did not accomplish. That's not God's intention for rest. Rest is intended to you to sit down and say, ah, look what I've done. Look at satisfied in all that's been done. That's a physical reality, which in the Bible very soon uh, uh, points to spiritual realities about our spiritual rest, pointing to our spiritual rest with God. Look at Deuteronomy 33, 12. Let the beloved of the Lord rest secure in him, for he shields him all day long, and the one the Lord loves rests between his shoulders. Isaiah 30, 15. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest, rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength. Moses and Joshua could not give the people rest, but Jesus comes and says, I will give you rest rest. It's odd that the rest comes with a yoke. The rest comes with a yoke. He, he says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy uh, and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. A yoke is an implement of work. How can Jesus say, I'll give you rest, here's a yoke. It's like saying, I'll give you a vacation, here's a mop. Well, how does he do that? What Jesus is saying is, let's be yoked together, and I will teach you how to live. Learn from me, Matthew 28, uh, teach people to obey my commands. Jesus says, I will teach you. In Jesus' day, they used to train young oxen by pairing them with old, older, well-trained oxen. So they put a younger animal that was just learning how to plow in the same yoke with an older, experienced oxen. And the older, experienced one would teach the younger one how to live and how to get the work done. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Be yoked to me, and I will teach you. And why is it possible for Jesus to teach? Because he's humble and gentle, gentle and humble in heart. All that agitation that you feel, Jesus wants to teach you how to respond. He's our source of rest. He's our source of rest because he has paid the penalty for our sins. And on the cross, he said, it is finished. The work has been done. Satisfaction has been made. He's our rest. And now he teaches us how to live in this broken world. His commands are more challenging than the Pharisees' commands. That's true. It's odd he says my yoke is easy and my burden is light, except for the fact that he's the one who teaches us and he's the one who is with us. Steve Brown says, I, I talked with a woman several years ago and she said, I know I'm a Christian. I can tell by looking at my bed. And he said, really, what? She said, well, before, um, uh, when I got out of bed, it was all rumpled. Uh, because I tossed and turned all night. But now, when I get out of bed, it's as smooth as silk. Some of you are faithful followers of Jesus and you sleep terribly, I understand. But, but you know what this woman is saying, right? What she's learned from Jesus. If you remain agitated and restless and worn out and worried, you have more to learn. The good news is that Jesus calls you to learn from him. So where does Jesus belong on the spectrum? 
on the gentle side or on the harsh side. Jesus breaks the spectrum, doesn't he? He is more severe than you imagined, and he brings a gentleness that cannot be exhausted. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you, and we come because the Lord Jesus has commanded us to come. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And Lord, we come to you, and we confess the burdens that we carry and that we feel. Some of us in this room have had a terrible week. The the sin that so easily besets us, we've been living with it. And here we are, come to worship on Sunday, talk about duck syndrome. We, have, we are weary and burdened by our own guilt and our own grief and our own shame. Some of us, Lord, we come before you because we are weary and burdened by 10 months of a pandemic. We're burdened by social distancing and mask wearing and all the things in our lives that have been upended. Some of us, Lord, we come before you and we're weary and burdened by broken relationships. We don't, we don't treat our siblings the way, we don't have that sort of relationship that we want or with our parents or with our children, with our spouse. Some of us are weary and burdened by the news what's happening in our own country. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you invited us to come. And we come confessing to you how dearly we need rest. Teach us. Teach us as we yoke ourselves to you how to live in this broken world. Let's spend some time in quietness. Shall we this morning? You can meditate and think about these things and you pray and, and seek the rest, promised rest that the Lord Jesus offers as he will teach us.